Oh, man, I need to be with you today. I need what we share together when we gather, whether it's online, wherever you're making your connection with us, or in physical presence that we've been doing for several months now. Uh, I need this, and so I am praying that the needs that God seeks to meet in me will be met in you as we gather together today. Wherever you're coming from, whatever you're facing, whatever encouragement you need, you know, but may the sharpening presence of God's grace and truth bring fresh lift and inspiration to you. And we're praying for one another across states, across nations, across time zones. God is not bound. God is present wherever you are right now. And we're asking God's Spirit to bring God's blessing into your space, not just where you are, but who you are. And then from there, make the difference that will lift us through this challenging time. And this is a challenging time. Um, <laughs> we're not making this up. We're in it. And we're moving through it. And that's why I say I need you because you help me move through this. And I'm praying the same thing for you from me, that you will feel strength from God through me to help you today. Now, maybe one of the least favorite experiences of my life is when I'm having a dream and it seems okay enough, you know, sleeping. And then all of a sudden it takes a turn for the worse. And now I'm somehow facing some situation where I really have no or limited control and I feel trapped, I feel stuck, like there's no way out. I'm facing the inevitable and, um, and then I wake up and it's like, oh, I'm so glad it was only a dream. And yet it still feels so real. It ever happened to you where you feel like you're stuck in a nightmare with no way out? No exit, no escape. It's like in the movie Groundhog Day, where Bill Murray plays uh, Phil Connors, who mysteriously gets stuck, finds himself stuck, reliving Groundhog Day like in a nightmare with no way out. Now, when we meet him in the movie, he's a narcissistic TV weatherman who calls himself the talent and then steamrolls over everybody in his path with his massive ego. He's assigned to Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania to cover their annual groundhog festivities where their tradition is to watch the local groundhog, Punxsutawney Phil, as he emerges out of his, uh, his burrow and then Phil Connors is supposed to report on whether Punxsutawney Phil sees his own shadow. If he does, then he's got to go. We got six more weeks of winter, and if he doesn't, then... Um, Spring is on its way. Well, Murray in the movie relives February the 2nd over and over and over, repeating his self-absorbed, self-destructive uh, patterns every day in, day out. He's forced to look at his life over and over and over again with no relief, no way out, until he finally starts to see the mess that his life is in and starts to face his responsibility in the middle of the mess. 
Now, one source, by the way, did a little research on this. One source reports that Phil relived Groundhog Day, February 2nd, 12,395 times. I think the director agreed, the director of the movie agreed. That's almost 34 years that he's stuck in this cycle of the same thing every day. And then he gradually, by the way, that may explain why he tries to do himself in so many times in so many different ways. But he starts to gradually learn that it is possible maybe to face the relentless grind of his day in, day out, same old life if he changes. If it doesn't change, then maybe he could change. Now some people call life, not Phil Connors, but the rat race. You've heard this. I looked it up in Wikipedia. Wikipedia says rat race is an endless, self-defeating, pointless pursuit. Now in a series like this, we would ask this question. In that case, if that's true, then how did human beings become such rats? Right? Why do we behave in such ratty ways? How did we get stuck in this? Like Rodney King asked, why can't we all just get along? Maybe you've wondered. Now, if the word rat feels a little too raw for your sensitivities today, maybe we could think Shakespeare for a moment with Macbeth where uh, he says, life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more, a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Stuck. Now, those aren't exactly happy thoughts, are they? No. You know what they are? They are worldviews. This is a series on worldview. And today we're asking the question of worldviews. What's wrong with us? What's wrong with the world? Why do we feel stuck in this world, like in this endless cycle of self-centered, self-defeating patterns, only to wake up to the same day one more time with the tedious mess of same old day after day? Every worldview's got to face this question. And they all offer different answers on this. For instance, 20th century philosopher, Jean-Paul Sartre, who was at one time called the original self-help guru, in his lecture, Existentialism as Humanism, says this, man is nothing else but what he makes of himself. Does that sound familiar? In self-help genre these days, 10 little two-letter words, if it is to be, it is up to me. Maybe you've heard that philosophy stated that way. But it came from Sartre who's also the guy who wrote the play, No Exit. He says life is really like being in a room where there's no exit. If you start paying attention, you get that, which is maybe also why he said hell is other people. <laughs> existentialism. Now, don't get snagged on these words, but existentialism and humanism are both offshoots of the worldview the world called naturalism, and we looked at that in greater detail last week. And we're going to see more in just a moment. But since we're trying to unpack some of the earliest chapters of Genesis in answering the same questions, let's start there. It seems to me that Genesis chapters 3 through 11 are really showing us what the answer, why we feel like life 
can be such a nightmare with no way out. It's like uh, the movie Groundhog Day, Genesis chapters 3 through 11. You can read them after the talk and make your own decision on that. But in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, what we learned the last time we were together, we said that from the biblical worldview, that humanity, human beings, had a powerful and personal beginning full of high-end potential as God. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 The Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, breath of God, and humanity became a living being, a human being. So what we see is dust of the earth, breath of life, image of God, that human beings were then placed in a garden of delights to discover and to develop it, the entire good earth that God gave with the adventure romance charge to bring your best self to your marriage and to your work as you do it in community with God. That's summary of Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Live with your Creator's blessing as co-regents, stewarding this good creation as you share God's dominion within it. And then they're also given the awesome gift of freedom. Moral valuation is what we called that. They're created good, and they bear the spiritual and personal image of good God. And as part of that image, they're given freedom. This is where human freedom comes from in the biblical worldview. Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. You are free. Free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of that tree, you will certainly die. And so with those words, we're introduced to the first of four stories in the Genesis prologue Genesis chapters 1 through 11, that answer this question, what's gone wrong in the world? Why can't we all just get along? Eight verses later, the image bearers of God, man and woman, assert their freedoms to decide to wrongfully violate the only prohibition that God had given them in the Garden of Delights which makes us want to ask the question, well, why would God do that? Why would God put a forbidden tree in the middle of this promised earth? And, of course, the answer is, so freedom could be real. So that his blessed creation could choose God's way freely in love, or not. And as the story takes a turn, What we see in Genesis chapter 3 is that in one act of disobedience, the devastation of spiritual death comes on humanity and on human nature and on human culture. In three, the postmortem on the decision gives three strong indicators as to what spiritual death looks like. It looks like rebellion against God, a rejection of God's kind of life. It looks like idolatry where we substitute the created for the creator, and then it looks like pride, just exalting and deifying ourselves over God as our king. Now, in the story, there is confusion, there is distraction, there is misdirection, there is deception, but ultimately, there was a choice to not use their freedom the way God intended, and it affected them. And as a result, what we see in the story, Genesis chapter 3, they are estranged and then they're personally ashamed. Or here's chapter 3, verse 7. The eyes of both were opened 
They realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So guilt, shame, fear has our image bearers, male and female, in hiding. They're hiding from themselves. They're hiding from God. They're hiding from each other. So that verse 9 says, the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And what we see there is that in violating God's command, the image bearers of God have actually violated their own essence. And, um, and now, as a devastating result, find themselves estranged and exiled. So there was the decision, then there was the the devastation. They find themselves uprooted from the garden, untethered from their moorings, and then lost from the future opportunity that Eden had offered them. Now, if you want a picture of what spiritual death looks like, that's it right there. The devastation results. And... uh, And now, in their spiritually dead state, the tree of life still available in the garden, if they were to eat of the tree of life, think for this for just a second, follow the storyline, that if they eat from the tree of life in their state of spiritual death, then they're going to be trapped that way for the rest of their eternal existence. And God just, they can't have that. So you know what he does? In an act of severe mercy... God places an angel with a flaming sword to guard them away from the tree of life in their exile. The question is, why can't we just get along? And the first answer is because there's something wrong in our hearts. There's something wrong at our core that leaves us estranged from one another and in exile from God and the opportunities he brings. And that's your story, that's my story, that's this story it's happened to me it's happened to you and that's the first answer to the reason why do we feel stuck because something inside us is second story the story of adam and eve start a family they have two sons cain and abel both of those young men grow to be uh young adults and as men now they are one is working the field, the other is raising flocks. Both are bringing offerings to God in worship. Cain brings the fruit of harvest, and Abel brings fat portions from the firstborn of his flock. We're not told the full reason why in the story, but God looks with favor on Abel's gift, and God not with favor on Cain's gift. Cain becomes angry, perhaps because of jealous rage and as a result it says he attacks and kills his brother it's the first murder in human history we're not even one generation into the family of our image bearers Um, but the first murder in human history in the bible it's interesting it isn't white versus black it isn't rich versus poor it isn't uh, drug related or alcohol induced or even because of somebody in power it's brother killing brother from the same mother and the same father and it's like what a nightmare you know where's the exit you know can i just wake up why can't we just get along 
Well, the, the next answer in the question is the disease of disobedience that started with the two image bearers in their marriage, in their relationship with themselves and each other, next shows up in their family with their kids. They don't make the murder happen, but it's happening under their watch, I suppose. And in the Genesis story, here's the rest of it downstream. We all come from the same original line which means the same parents, which means that every murder takes the life of a family member of yours and mine. Wherever they're from, whoever they are, no matter what happens. Now, after the deed was done, I'm just telling you the storyline here. After the deed was done, God comes looking for Cain with a question. Where's your brother? Just as God also came to Adam after his disobedience, where are you? Now, we know that God knew where Adam was, he wanted, he, and he knows where we are. He knows where you are. He knows what's happening within us. But God was giving Adam a reality check. Did he know where he now was in light of what he'd done? Where are you? And when God, then God asked him directly, have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And then instead of simply fessing up and saying, oh, yeah, yeah I did that, no, he blames the woman, and then the woman blames the serpent, right? And, and then in Cain, the next generation, when he asks Cain, Cain doesn't fess up either. He, uh, he denies responsibility. You know, he says, am I my brother's keeper, really? He's like, let's just dodge ball. Now, I don't think God was really looking for Abel. He knew where Abel was. He was, he was very aware of that. But it was a reality check for Cain, and what Cain shows in his answer is that he's slipping farther and farther away from what's true, from what's most real. So he's living in denial, and he's dodging, and he's self-defending, and he's hiding behind words. Does any of that sound familiar to any culture you're familiar with? Cain becomes an exile with a past, just like his parents, and the stone's been tossed into the water, and now its concentric circles are reaching out to touch every shore. That's the storyline we're seeing from the Bible, you know. Why can't we all just get along? Third story, Noah. But today we're not looking at, um, at the friendly animals all coming in two by two to the ark. What we're looking at here is we're being invited to see what, that what started with one married couple and one act of disobedience has now erupted in to the next level of sibling rivalry and then actually family violence and now is affecting an entire civilization. This is the early chapters of Genesis telling us now that moral chaos is everywhere you look. Barely chapters in to the first story, chapter six, Genesis chapter six, verse five, the Lord saw and he saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that the imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually did you see the word image in that word imagination these image bearers have now had their imaginations soiled to the point that they can't filter anything without the evil affecting it that has come downstream and is now rising up in them the image of god in human creations has now been corrupted by the imaginations of evil that are far far from God. Where are you? People weren't even thinking about God. Genesis chapter 6 verse 11, the earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence. It was corrupt. 
all flesh has corrupted their way on the earth. The word corrupt just means it's starting to rot. It's rotting into a state of ruin. It's like the genie's out of the bottle now, you know. The spark has become a wildfire that's just blazing and raging out of control, and, uh, and the cancer has metastasized to the entire body. It's, it's being riddled and ruined. And so God decides, this is a storyline, God decides that a flood is needed that can wash his creation Wash away the evil, destroy the destroying force, and at the same time, deliver those that are still walking with him and looking his way through the darkness. But as we see in chapter 6, there's only, there can only be one way out from that nightmare. Verse 8, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So God offers grace in the storm for Noah and for all of his family who will choose to join him in the ark. Fourth story. Fourth story. Tower of Babel. Babel is the name of the site of ancient Babylon, the Babylonian Empire. We started with one of their early creation stories in the first message of the series. And as, as the culture developed after, in the aftermath of the flood, some men came together and said this, come, let's build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. You know, there's maybe this understated um, subtext about if we can build high enough, maybe we can get out of reach of the next flood that would be unleashed on us. We'll just save ourselves. So they're planning a future, but it's built purely on human ego without God. It's a self-made myth. And then the Lord's not happy. This is the storyline. It's like, why would God not be happy with that? Well, in the story, it's like saying, well, here we go again. You know, it's the same song. It's just going to be the next verse, and it's not going to turn out as they imagine because we've already seen how the imaginations have, have scarred the image, and it's not going to be. So what does God do now? Well, it says that he once again acts in severe mercy. He confuses the languages, the people are then scattered, and the building stops on the city. Why did God do that? I believe he's trying to slow the rebellion down without doing the extreme amputation remedy that we just saw in the earlier chapters. He's trying to slow it down because he knows it's going to lead to the same place that the first one did. It's going to lead to people being broken, alienated, isolated, morally corrupted, lost and dead, estranged and exiled, and not able to connect from the heart with each other or with God. So they're going to be strangers to themselves and to the God whose image they bear. Now, there are four stories about how culture has spiraled downward because image bearers made a choice that was like a nightmare from which they never woke up. And that not only can marriages be lost and families and children be lost, that entire civilizations can go astray. How? Well, here's the storyline. It starts with individuals. It starts with individual decisions, then it spreads to family and individual decisions, and then it can engulfs entire communities and then entire cultures. And here's the thing. 
This isn't just a Bible record. History has shown this to be true time and again. But why does it happen? That's today's question. Every worldview has some kind of answer. Perhaps you have one that you've kind of remedied in your mind, like this is how it all works. This is how it all came undone. Well, every worldview has one. Naturalism, for instance, says it's survival of the fittest. What, what we call going wrong really is a matter of the strongest surviving at the expense of those that aren't. Naturalism's philosophy is survival of the fittest. And so let's let it play out. That means that the ruinous places in human history really reflect the upward stumble of our evolving race. And actually, I read an article on this this week in a secular magazine that our brains are still evidencing genetically the primitive lizard in them from which we've come that fuels human behavior with fight, flight, fear, freezing up, and fornication. And the author's contention was that our evolutionary history is still at work in our current 21st century brain, and that's why we're seeing the stuff we're seeing. Every worldview's got to have an answer for this. Pantheism says, you know, the universe really has karma built into it. And your actions, moral and immoral, boomerang back to you. And they will determine your fate in all future reincarnations, and that means everybody around you is going to be affected too. That's the answer that pantheism brings. Your behaviors are just being repeated in exponential ways back into your own life. Nihilism says this, what we really call meaning is irrational. <laughs> in reality, life is absurd, so the question has no answer. Because life truly makes no sense. People just keep going through the motions day after day because, hey, you know what? It's just what we do. 20th century existentialism, Jean-Paul Sartre says, you know, sooner or later you just got to wake up and face the brutal facts. Life is going to be what you make it, nothing more, nothing less. You got to make your own meaning because there is no exit and by the way, Genesis shows us that even though that may be some of the late-breaking um, philosophies of our day, that Genesis shows us this is no message. In fact, it was being tried in the early pages of the Bible. Have you ever heard this? History repeats itself. That's a worldview. But it's saying that history is like Groundhog Day. It just keeps repeating itself with no way out. In the movie, Phil Connors does find a way out. Now, if you've seen the movie, then we like happy endings to the movie, but his way out was without God in the movie. Of course, um, he never looks up. He never offers a prayer. Audiences aren't looking for that when we go to be entertained. But he is his own God in the film. In fact, he saves himself. Along... And along the way, he does it trying to dominate other people, manipulate other people, fornicate with other people, intoxicate himself away from other people, and educate himself to the point that he can get beyond other people. 
until finally, by showing genuine kindness and uh, authentic care for somebody else, he escapes his own self-adoration. He gets over himself by himself. And then it turns the tide. And when Phil emerges from his burrow without seeing his own shadow, then he's free to move on. And it's a great happy ending to a movie that I enjoy. But as a pastor, I can tell you, and just as a human being, I can tell you, life doesn't, uh, doesn't quite work like that. And even if it did, now thinking worldview, wouldn't everybody need to get over themselves at the same time and treat everyone else with genuine kindness everywhere all the time for it to work? If that's the worldview that's going to get us over ourselves, what are we to do about humanity's inhumanity to humanity? Well, it's got to start somewhere. And we probably all would agree with this. It's got to start with individual awareness. That's the first word. Awareness of what? Awareness of our problem, of our need. Carl Jung, popular Swiss psychologist, said this, through pride we are ever deceiving ourselves. But deep down below the surface of the average conscience is a still small voice that says to us, something's out of tune. You know how the scripture says that? Romans chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Things aren't right because out with the world because things aren't right with each one of us. We're not right. I saw this teacher, this t-shirt last week. It said, if I were a Jedi, there's a 100% chance that I would use the force inappropriately. <laughs> this is that admission. The awareness is, the problem is in me, the problem is with me. First there's awareness, then it's got to be accompanied by openness. Einstein, another brilliant mind, said the problems that exist in the world today cannot be solved by the level of thinking that created them. Hmm, you agree with that? Does that include the problems inside you that you've been a part of creating? That if you're going to get beyond your own problems, that you're going to have to look somewhere else to a greater thinking than your own thinking? Is that what that means? Does this mean that we could actually be open to the intervention of a greater mind, of a higher intelligence, thoughts that might be higher than ours? This sounds kind of like Isaiah to me, where the Lord says, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. So come, let us reason together. It's like God still wants in the conversation. God asks Adam, where are you? He comes to Cain, creating conversation about his anger. I'm thinking if God were to ask you that question today about where you are, about the emotion that rage within you, what would your answer be? This is the question of self-awareness and then of openness. Would you be open to the conversation? What would you say? Do you have a willingness to listen to God? Where are you? Are you aware? Are you open? Are you willing? To let God meet you in your mess, to let God meet you in the mess in your heart, in your family, to face it, not deny it, in your community, in your world, in your culture. You know, in the Sermon on the Mount, 
because we've said we're comparing the early chapters of Genesis to the conclusion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. At the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he said, you know, there's really only two ways that you can go. There are two choices you've got to make. One is going to lead to destruction. The other is going to lead to life. In other words, Jesus taught that not all stories have happy endings. Some choices will lead to life. Yes, yes, yes. But then these are not, they're, they're hard. Some choices that lead to life are hard. They're not popular. They don't always feel fun when you're making them. And then other choices that are like, whee, devastating to culture, personal nature, and your family. And not only in the stories of Genesis, but in the stories of our lives. I think what we're supposed to learn from this, what I'm supposed to learn from this, is that these stories are my story too. They're your story too. And as I would invite you to read through Genesis chapters 1 through 11 again and be thinking of that. Are these stories just old stories or are they as new as my story where I'm living right now with what people are going through in our day? It's like my story looks a lot like theirs with rebellion, with disobedience, with brokenness, with guilt, with shame, with anger, with jealousy, with alienation, with moral confusion and turbulence and violence and chaos, just like Noah's day. In fact, did you know Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. What's Jesus underlining there? Hey, wait, history's going to repeat itself. This is what human nature causes to have happen. History just repeats itself. Matthew chapter 24, verse 37. For in the days before the flood, this is Jesus speaking, people were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. They were hanging out and doing their own thing right up to the day Noah entered the ark and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. This is Jesus talking. And then here's what he says. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. There is coming a day of accountability when the Creator God, whose heir we have borrowed all of our lives, whose planet we have stewarded all of our lives, whose choices we have been entrusted with for freedom that could make impact all of our lives, will say to us, hey, Time's up, everybody out of the pool. And then accountability will be before us. Are you ready? Are you aware? Are you open? Are you willing to let what? To let God meet you right where you are. Where are you? Do you know where you are? And are you open to the conversation that could lead you to a different place to do life with the God who made you? Then don't close your eyes but invite God to open them wider, and then, as you do, let him bring new light, but not only new light. Would you be willing to let him wash away some of the places where destruction has tried to destroy your marriage, your family, your brother, your world? Could we invite God to meet us there, and then, like Noah, Find grace as we face the storm of our time so that God could use us to extend the safe place to as many as will come with us until he comes again. Would you pray with me?
gracious and almighty God. You have found me out once again. In these stories that I thought were old and gone, I see myself. I see the turmoil in the world I live in, in the families that I know. And I pray right now, Lord, if somebody else is joining me in this prayer and they're seeing the same things I'm seeing, that they would join me also in saying to you, Lord, would you open my eyes wider, help me not to close them? That my heart that is already starting to callous over could find a fresh softness in you. And that you would extend your truth into my life in ways that could show grace to others in need as well, to others that are searching as well, to others that are just clueless as well. They didn't even know. And suddenly time was up. I'm praying for somebody today who may be listening like that, who came, who logged on, who joined in the conversation here, and then this became very uncomfortable along the way all of a sudden. And I pray that you would meet them in the discomfort and take them to the solution that you alone can provide. And friend, if you're open and willing to let that happen, then you can join me in the prayer right now. Lord Jesus, I believe, as you said, that history does repeat itself and that I have need of you because I don't always see my own needs. But I am open to you today. If that's you talking to me, would you turn the volume up? Talk a little louder. Help me listen and help me as I turn from going my way and learn to follow your way. Come into my life. Forgive my sin. Fill me with your spirit and now lead me. Brother, sister in Christ, perhaps this is the day for a fresh forgiving flow of God's grace in your life as well. Receive it now as we make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.